The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Hi, guys. Uh, wow. You, you guys were way better at that than the morning crew. And I, just, I told them that as well, even though you hadn't been here yet. Um, so I'd like to start off by telling you guys a little bit about myself. Um, some of you know me, some of you don't. Um, and that's okay. The people who know me get to hear this twice because they probably already figured it out. Um, I went to Roberts Wesleyan College here in Rochester, way on the other side. And um, I studied, I got a religion philosophy degree there, and I, I largely studied philosophy and biblical studies. So I think those two things combined actually gave me kind of an interesting perspective on reading the Bible and, and how to do that and, and what the purpose of it is. Now, the first thing I learned from the biblical, biblical studies side um, was that it, it was important to um, read the Bible literally. And by literally, I don't mean the way you've probably heard other people say literally, which is just to take whatever you already thought was true and then pretend that the Bible says that. I mean, to read it as literature, that, that there are characters and that there are um, different sort of literary things going on, that there's a structure, that there are metaphors maybe, or allusions, or puns, which are very popular in Hebrew and not nearly as popular in English, <laughs> gets lost in translation. Um, so that's the first thing that I think uh, I'd like us to kind of think about as we're going through. And we're going to talk about the structure, the illusion in 1 Samuel 25 when we're talking about David and, and his rising as a king. And, and last week, Scott talked about you know, that being because of God's anointing on, on David. Uh, this week, I'm going to take a totally different approach. Um, in, in fact, these are Scott's notes from last week, and this week I've just been looking at them going, opposite, opposite, <laughs> opposite. That's not entirely true. But anyway, <laughs> so... Last week, you know, we talked about that. This week, we're going to talk about the human side of David and his ambition and, and what got him into the kingship. Uh, but before we, we dive into that, I want to talk about the philosophy side and how that sort of influenced how I read the Bible. And I'd like to read a quote from uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who many of you know from your extensive studies of Danish philosophers. Um, <laughs> it's, philosophers probably shouldn't be plural in that particular sentence. <laughs> I shouldn't... Like, I didn't really think that philosophy jokes were going to fly with you guys. Good job. <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, but, but Kierkegaard uh, often wrote books using pseudonyms, um, somebody else's name, in order to, to kind of use uh, irony, so, similar to the Bob Dylan song, different than hipster irony. Um, that one didn't land this morning either. But Kierkegaard thought that when you read the Bible, and in, in 
the book that I'm going to read from for self-examination, he actually put his own name on this. You know, it's kind of a direct, uh, you know, something that he wanted to say directly to, to people. He said that the word of God was like a mirror and that it was something that you use to examine yourself. Um, and uh, the quote from For Self-Examination is as follows regarding the, the Bible as a mirror. The first requirement is that you must, look, you must not look at the mirror or observe the mirror, but must see yourself in the mirror. The second requirement is that in order to see yourself in the mirror when you read God's word, you must, so that you actually do come to see yourself in the mirror, remember to say to yourself incessantly, it is I to whom it is speaking, it is I to whom it is speaking. Again, that's uh, Soren Kierkegaard from For Self-Examination. So what I'd like us to do um, is go through, we're going to go through 1 Samuel 25, and in just a moment I'm going to ask some readers to come up, and they're going to, in a particular order, read this passage to us. And go ahead, leave the Bibles where they are, just listen to the words for this time through. We'll refer back to aspects of it often enough, um, and I'll give you the page number then, but just for, for now, just listen. Um, and we're going to start off by talking about the structure in 1 Samuel 25, and, and what that says about the characters and what that says about David's rise to power, David's rise to, to the monarchy in Israel. And next, we're going to talk about allusions, literary references to, specifically here, to other parts of the Bible, to earlier stories, things that would have been common. Um, you know, something like my 30 Rock reference earlier, for those of you who... That was the opposite bit, if you, didn't, if you don't watch 30 Rock. But we're going to talk about those, uh, those references. Um, right now, I'd like to invite the, uh, the readers to come on up and read 1 Samuel 25 to us. And again, just go ahead and listen, and I'll give you the, uh, the page numbers after this. All right, so from 1 Samuel whatever we're at here. 25. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. They buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David got up and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Maon whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was clever and beautiful. But the man was surly and mean. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. Thus you shall salute him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been among us, have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing. All the time, they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your sight. We have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. 
But Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every one of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he shouted insults at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we never missed anything when we were in the fields. As long as we were with them, they were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for evil has been decided against our master and against all his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep ready-dressed, five measures of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. She loaded them on donkeys and said to her young men, Go on ahead of me. I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of the mountain, David and his men came toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely it was in vain that I protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. But he has returned me evil for good. God do so to David. God do so to David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey, fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. My lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of his Lord, and the, evening shall not, and the evil shall not find, be found in you as long as you live. If anyone should rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you the prince over Israel... My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or having saved himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. Blessed be your good sense, and blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt and from avenging myself by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. He said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have heeded your voice, and I have granted your petition. 
Abigail came to Nabal, who was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. He became like a stone, and ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has judged the case of Nabal's insult to me and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has returned the evil doing of Nabal upon his own head. Then David sent and wooed Abigail to make her his wife. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. She rose and bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Your servant is a slave to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Abigail got up hurriedly and rode away on a donkey. Her five maids attended her, and she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. David also married Ahinoab of Jezreel. Both of them became his wives. Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galim. The word of the Lord. Thanks, guys. All right, so that's First uh, Samuel 25. Any questions? No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you would like to now actually look that up, it's on page 234 in the Red Bibles. There's some kind of difference in the wording, and that's why I didn't have you uh, follow along right away. Um, in your own Bibles, I, you're on your own. I don't, I don't know what page it's on. Um, what I want to start... Uh, talking about with the structure of this passage is actually talking about its placement within the, the book of 1 Samuel, within Samuel kind of as a, as a whole book, because really they only split it into two books because they happen to find two clusters of parchments. They're really one book. Um, and obviously, um, we've got nice chapter headings and chapter numbers, so we can tell that, that 1 Samuel 25 is between 24 and 26. That's easy. That's counting. But what's more significant is the actual content of those chapters. Now, in chapter 24, King Saul is pursuing David to kill him. I don't know why. But he's kind of, a, he's kind of an angry guy. That might be it. I'm, I don't know. Nevertheless, he's, he's going after David. And David finds an opportunity to sneak up on Saul to find him vulnerable. And in doing so, takes a little pot that, that Saul had kept uh, next to him and then shows it to, to Saul as proof that, look, I, I could have done harm to you, but I didn't, and I want you to know that. And you're returning evil for the good that I'm doing to you. And so that's chapter 24. Now, over in 26, after the events that, that we just heard about, King Saul... It's pursuing David to kill him. I don't really know why, because he's an angry dude, I guess. It's kind of the same story. In this one, a little different, um, Saul is, has gone into a cave to relieve himself, and David sneaks in and cuts a bit of his cloak. So maybe a little more cause for wanting to kill David, largely that he invaded his privacy and ruined his cloak. Um, but nevertheless, 
the important part is that you have two parallel passages here. And in the Bible, when you have that sort of thing happening, these just very strikingly similar accounts, it serves as a sort of frame to make you focus on the content that's between those two passages, which is Samuel 25. And within 1 Samuel 25, there's another structure that's very interesting. Um, and it's, it's called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. And it's a, it's a technique that's used both in Hebrew and in Greek writing uh, at, at various times, so it's so a lot of the stuff that, that shows up in the Bible. Um, and if we can get that thrown up on the uh, screen, that'd be great. Perfect. You guys are good at cues. Um, what we have here, the beginning of 1 Samuel 25, David makes a request. I say a request because it's very dip- diplomatic. Um, it's a threat. Let's, let's be honest. David shows up, just comes out of nowhere, and says, this guy's rich. Let's protect his sheep in that we'll hang around so nobody else kills them, and if he doesn't give us what, he, what we want, we'll kill them. Easy. Because the, the positive uplifting message in 1 Samuel 25 is that racketeering is great. It's not great. Um, so notice that at the beginning of that, too, we do have a little footnote that Samuel, the guy after whom the entire book is named, dies, and everybody mourned, and that was it. So not a major player in this. Nabal, kind of a major player. David, certainly a major player. Abigail, also a major player. You know who else isn't a major player? God. He gets a little cameo because he strikes down Nabal. Maybe. It may just be, you know, language that's being used by the author because they don't know entirely why Nabal died. So that may be a little tension there. Just an interesting thing to know, you know, who's, who's active here. So after David's threat, Nabal makes a response. And it's not great. Now, given David's not not being the greatest guy right here. But no, no, no harm has come to them. That's, that's true. That's fair. But Nabal, acting in, in the way uh, he is named, answers very foolishly to, to the guy who has 400 men or so ready to, to come down there and kill all the males. Um, Ask later if you want to know how that verse is translated in the King James. It's very nice. Um, Some of you know. (laughs) So Nabal responds very foolishly to David. Okay. Then we get to what is essentially the meat of this chapter, or the very important part of this passage, Abigail's response, Abigail's speech to to David. And we're going to come back to some of the qualities of that that speech in, in, a, in a couple minutes. But just know that the placement in this passage of Abigail's speech highlights it as the most important part. And so that's where we're going to focus on that. Next, of course, David realizes that it was probably a bad idea to go down and slaughter a whole bunch of people. He had to have somebody else tell him that after they gave him a bunch of gifts. So... Nevertheless, David sort of realizes that his actions were a little bit foolish. In the same way that Nabal's 
response was, okay? And in the last part, we do get a little epilogue that tells us about David's wives and, and some of Saul's actions. So a little kind of mention of that stuff. But Nabal dies, possibly because Abigail poisoned him. Possibly because she knew he had some existing condition and was likely to have a heart attack or a stroke when he found out that she just gave away a whole bunch of his stuff. We're going to get back to that again when we go back to Abigail's speech. But I mentioned this just to point out that structure that highlights Abigail's speech. And now I'd like to move into talking about some of the illusions that I mentioned earlier. And these are references back to other parts of the book of Samuel or other parts of the Old Testament. Now, there's, there's one that I, I'd like to bring up. Um, it's the description that we get of Abigail, that, that she's wise and beautiful. And know that it's rare in Hebrew literature to give a description of somebody's physical appearance. It's just not, not all that common. And there is somebody else in the book of Samuel who we do get a description of their physical appearance. And you probably don't remember it from last week because Scott skipped it. But we get a description in the passage where we learn that God does not look on the outward appearances, that David is ruddy and handsome. So that's interesting. But I think what the author may be doing is saying that, you know what? Abigail, Nabal, not a good match. Abigail, David, much better match. Okay, fair enough. There's some more illusions that are going on here. The author, I think, is comparing Nabal with Saul because this passage is placed between two occurrences when Saul attempts to return evil for the good that David has done. And David accuses Nabal of doing the exact same thing. So I think there's some comparison going on there. But then there's some references that go even further back into stories that would have been told at this time. Stories about the foundation of Israel itself, before the kingship, before the judges even, way back with these sort of patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the connection there is that the name Nabal, this is kind of an easy one, is an anagram for the name Laban. And Laban is a character who um, has a confrontation with one of Israel's patriarchs, Jacob. Uh, Jacob, running away from his brother because he's stolen his blessing and his birthright and done a lot of deception, leaves and meets up with Laban and marries Laban's two daughters and takes care of Laban's flocks and doesn't deal with Laban maybe in the best way possible. He may have stolen some of his flocks. So interestingly, Laban and Nabal are anagrams, but David may be associated with Jacob in this instance, because David was protecting Nabal's flocks, Jacob was protecting Laban's, and they both 
sort of deal unfairly with the owners of, of these flocks. So there's a, maybe a connection there. Now, going, continuing in the story of Jacob, having stolen, possibly, Laban's flocks, Jacob has to flee and gets himself stuck between a rock and a hard place because while he's fleeing Laban, he's running towards his brother that he had previously run away from, Esau, who, by the way, is described as, as being red-haired, which may be what the word ruddy is, is meant to indicate about David. Okay. Interesting. So, so David is Jacob, but also David is Esau. And why do we say that? Because Jacob, in this story, in, uh, in Genesis 32, when he's fleeing from Laban, before he goes to meet Esau, he sends out a gift ahead of him. The description of which is not that different than the gift that Abigail sends out ahead of herself. Jacob also, when going to meet Esau, bows down and calls himself Esau's servant, which is exactly what Abigail does. So, in the same way that the author is maybe comparing David with Jacob, maybe comparing David with Esau and Abigail with Jacob. So now we have an interesting association here. That David is associated with the, the rightful heir of sort of the, the Israelite heritage and also with the disinherited older brother. So last week he got anointed as the youngest, but this week we're not so sure. Now there's another reference, um, and this goes back to uh, Genesis 21-21. Um, and the connection here, and I'm sure some of you noticed when, when we first uh, read uh, Samuel 25, uh, that in the first verse, David got, got up and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And you probably thought, that's weird, Paran, that's far away from Maon. Those aren't even near each other. I, and you're right to think that because they're not near each other. No, Paran is, is way the heck away from there. And some people have suggested, so, some different uh, scholars, that, that this maybe, be, maybe was just a translation mistake or a transliteration mistake, that somebody was copying this over and just got the name wrong. They put an R where they should have put a anything else. Who knows? I actually think that the author put this in here intentionally to associate David with Ishmael, who in Genesis 21, 21, uh, is said to live in the wilderness of Paran. Now, Ishmael, you may remember, was the firstborn son of Abraham uh, to a concubine and was, upon the birth of, of Isaac, Abraham's second son, is sent away with his mother into the wilderness to fend for himself. Not, not part of the, the Israelite heritage. The disinherited older brother. So twice, the author, the narrator, if you, if you prefer, of Samuel is comparing David with the disinherited older brother. Once with Esau, once with Ishmael. Interesting. 
this may be a suggestion that David, in this instance at the very least, is not acting as the rightful king of Israel. Just a suggestion. We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit more later. But now that we've sort of looked at the structure, we've looked at some of the, the allusions, some of the references in Samuel, I want to come back and focus a little bit more on Abigail's speech. Now, you maybe noticed when Abigail was speaking, but she said, my Lord, a lot. Because it was very important for her, in this instance, to quell David's recklessness, to use very deferential language, to to set herself up as the the servant of servants to David, who who she then claims, uh, you know, is working for the Lord, and and even mentions that, that David is fighting the Lord's battles, but because he's going to be king, probably not the best idea if he's also a murderer. Maybe it sets him up politically to, um, to incur a, a coup. He does. We'll get to that later. But I think what Abigail is suggesting is that Nabal is a problem. And it's not good for David to be involved, but maybe she could take care of Nabal for him. Maybe. She certainly seems to, to know her, her way around. She, she's done some research on David. She knows that he slew Goliath because she makes a reference to it. And in the wordplay she uses, mentioning that uh, David's enemies will become like stone, apparently knowing that when she told Nabal the news, his heart would turn to stone, it sort of suggests that she had something to do with his death that she maybe set this up bloodlessly, interesting, so that David doesn't incur any guilt. Because it's not a great idea for the king of Israel to go around killing people. It's a better idea to have him have somebody else do it for him. <laughs> and he does. He gets, he gets a general later who he sends out and kills the people that he doesn't like and he just sits back and lets that happen. And if there's, if there's a husband who's in the way and the wife is not willing to, to kill him, we'll just send him out to battle. And one of our enemies can do the work for me. That's great. We're going to get to that eventually, I think. Bathsheba, something like that. Someone will mention it later. We'll talk. Someday, somebody again will, will mention that name. And then you'll think of this. But David is set up as somebody who, who cannot do the killing himself. He has to have other people do it for him while he gets rewards and money from them because he's in the mafia. <laughs> but of course, he's working with sheep and goats, agriculture, so it may be a little more like 4-H. For those of you who have seen Jim Gaffigan. But again, focusing on Abigail's speech, what I'd like to get across here is is something that's unsettling, something that is disturbing 
about this speech. And that's the way in which God, who is not present in this chapter, except for that that one mention in, in verse 38, that he struck down Nabal, God has no other activity here. Abigail says that David is fighting the Lord's battles, even though you shouldn't kill anybody. Let me do that for you. So, so actually, she's fighting David's battles. She's the Lord, or God's on her side or something. And David, in referring back to Abigail and his response to her, says that the Lord sent her. Well, no, the Lord didn't send her. The Lord didn't say anything about that. Actually, it was Nabal's servant who, ironically was breaking away from his master who told Abigail that David was here. And Abigail got herself up and went out there herself. So it's not the Lord who sent her. It's the servant and her. And she's probably a murderer, and, and David's an extortionist, and Nabal's an idiot. And the servant is probably the only guy who's a decent guy. <laughs> so fair play to the unnamed servant. Good work. And it's interesting that these characters who are so ambitious, so ready to become king that they're willing to murder, or so ready to become queen that they're willing to murder for somebody else, claim to have God on their side. I think that's interesting, and it weirds me out a lot. And it does go back to that, the Dylan tune that, that we had for confession. That it's, it's dangerous sometimes to claim that God is on our side. When we do something that's, that's violent, when we do something that, that actually props ourselves up, that builds our kingdom instead of God's or, or whatever. But I don't want to leave us there. I'd like us to go to Matthew 5. 38 through 42. And if you're in the Red Bibles, that's page 786. Give you guys a moment to get there, and I think this is going to show up on the screen eventually. That's okay, I'm going to read it. So, This is what Jesus is saying in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Okay, so Nabal, not the right response. Abigail, better. Probably shouldn't have included the murder bet. But going out and meeting David was the right thing to do. It, it prevented more violence, even than her killing Nabal. That's one death compared to all the males in their household. Okay, good, good move, Abigail. Little disconcerted about the poisoning thing, that's okay. What I want to point out is that as we move towards communion, We have an opportunity here for self-reflection. And now I'm getting into the, the Kierkegaard, into the philosophy side again. And I don't necessarily want to tell you what you need to re- 
reflect on or what you need to examine yourself on because that would really be not self-examination because I would be telling you that's not what that word means. But I'd like to give us an opportunity to, to do some of that. And as we move towards communion, I want us to think about the response that, that Jesus gives to evildoers, to those who would return evil for good. So maybe thinking in the opposite perspective. And you may want to, um, in a few moments, uh, do some self-examination in, in the Ignatian style, where you put yourself into the story as one of the characters. Maybe you're like David, maybe you're Abigail, or Nabal, or the servant. Maybe you'd prefer to just ask some questions, and that's a good idea, um, because the song said you never ask questions with God on your side. So let's ask some questions. Why, if God is on David's side, or God is on Abigail's side, or God is on our side, is in 1 Samuel 25, why is God on the sideline? Why isn't he intervening at all? If David's anointed, how come God is not just making this easy for him? Or if David's going to do violence, why isn't God preventing it? Maybe you want to ask why such a, a violent man as David might even be considered the rightful king. He's a complex guy. It's complicated. Maybe you want to ask some of those questions. Maybe you want to think about yourself in kind of a, a personal setting. Maybe you want to think more broadly in self-examination and think about the place we're in right now, our culture at this time in history, and whether we're claiming that God is on our side in a particular situation or whether we are confronted by others who claim to have God on their side, or whether everybody's claiming God's on their side, and that makes it really confusing. I'll give you a hint. God does not like the Patriots. I'm kidding. <laughs> Patriots fans, I'm, I'm kidding. Don't come hurt me later. But I also want to make another suggestion here in self-examination. I want us to think about the communion table where Christ invites us to share a meal with him. That in the morning service, we actually sang a song that mentioned Christ's death um, being necessary to, to sort of uh, quash God's wrath. But I actually wonder if Jesus is a little bit more like Abigail, or if maybe Abigail is a bit more like Jesus, in that both come to us as servants and bring us gifts and are responsible for quieting down and restraining our recklessness. So maybe we're like David. Maybe we set ourselves up as, as the de facto rulers over whatever we feel like ruling. Or maybe we sort of set others up as those rulers and we, we prop them up. And we're complicit in the violence that they do. Or maybe we let others do the violence for us and we're okay with that because at least we're not in trouble. We're, we're not saying anything to oppress anybody, even though those guys are and we're not really doing anything about it and we're benefiting 
from it. So I don't know if we're okay with that or not. But I think in the communion table, we have an opportunity to let our recklessness be restrained and to remove ourselves from the position we put ourselves in as you know, it's the rulers of these, these tiny kingdoms that, that actually are just going to collapse. And even though the metaphor may not, or the, uh, the match between Abigail and Jesus may not be entirely accurate because of the poisoning, maybe it's fair to say that while Abigail killed Nabal, a fool who was in the way, Jesus also put to death death itself. I don't know if you want to describe death as a fool, but anyway, it was in the way. So before we come to the table, I'd like us to take a few minutes and do some silent self-examination. And this is going to be at least as uncomfortable as the Dylan tune uh, because we don't always do it all that often and there's not going to be like music or something going on. It's just going to be quiet. But take an opportunity and examine yourself. And I'm going to take an opportunity and, and examine myself as well. And um, we'll take a couple minutes and do that. And then I'll, I'll uh, come back up and we'll open up communion. what I'd like to do now is open up the communion table. Um, and this is something we do every week here at Artisan, is, is to partake of the, the broken bread that represents Jesus' body and the, 
the poured out wine that represents his blood, that in this case I want us to think about as restraining us from acting recklessly, from incurring guilt. And I don't want us to think of this as a condemnation of ourselves, but as an opportunity to do what is right, to become empowered, maybe, to rule rightfully and in the right context over creation, because that is sort of our assignment in Genesis. So if, if you're a follower of Jesus, go ahead and, and partake. If you're not quite sure, that's totally great. Take some more time. Do some more self-examination. You may find that, that today you're ready, and that's fantastic. And go ahead, and if you would answer the question that Jesus asks, would you like to dine with me? By saying yes, then please partake. But again, if you're not quite sure, take some more time and examine yourself. Even if you are sure, take some time, examine yourself, continue. No need to form a line immediately. The table is going to be open for the rest of service. So I'm going to pray really quickly, and then the communion table will be open. And you can go ahead. Dear God, we thank you for the ways that you keep us from recklessness, from self-destructive behavior, from doing something that in the long run is only going to harm us. We thank you that you came out to meet us, that you brought gifts with you. Again, God, we thank you for that. Amen. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.